Hi, I'm Beverly Burnett, and I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon family group. First of all, I want to thank you for being here, and I'd like to especially thank Chip for making it so much fun. He is, really has been a great voice. The jokes aren't so good, though. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'm going to go online, that internet. <laughs> um, I would also like to thank Anne and, and for inviting me and Bud for picking us up at the airport and um, we have been in, nibbling in our little fruit basket and enjoying that and especially enjoying the fellowship here this weekend. I am really impressed with the amount of people that were here not only last night but for the afternoon meetings today. I mean, I think that's just wonderful. You must, I, I, Carol and O.C. took us to a meeting Wednesday night and it was one of the best I've been to and Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And it's, uh, we walked into the room just as they were reading the opening, and I thought, you know, here I am, a thousand miles or so from home, and it's just the same, you know. The smiles are the same, the love is the same, the voices that you hear reading, you know, they're the same. And it's, I don't know, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful meeting. Uh, I have uh, found people here in this room um, and out in the hallways that I've known for many years, and I've had the opportunity to meet some new people since I've been here. And that's always fun. I'm getting a little bit better at remembering names. <laughs> I've always been, you know, like I just couldn't remember, but I'm making an effort. You know, it takes a little concentration to do that, and uh, and and it um, it feels good. I like when you remember my name, and I like to be able to remember yours as well. My husband is traveling with me this weekend, and that gives me great joy because when I get to go out and talk, he doesn't often get a chance to go with me, and. Um, he doesn't like to do this, but I'm going to ask him to stand up <laughs> so you can see who he is. It's my husband, George. And Monday, November 11th, we'll be married 35 years. <laughs> so this is like a little honeymoon. <laughs> um, I'm having a great time. It's fun to have him with me. I've been out on the beach, and I've been to Fort Walton Beach one other time about four years ago with a friend of mine just here. And it just so happened it was the weekend of the roundup, and one of the speakers that was here was somebody from Dallas, and we came up here, and so I've already been, I've already been in the hotel and um, had a good time. And um, the same thing happened four years ago that happened here. We got here, it was hot and humid and muggy, and the cold front came in, and it turned dry and awesome, and and so thank you for doing that. <laughs> um, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, um, to a family that I believe today was alcoholic. Um, and they were not the first generation of alcoholics. My father, I believe, was the alcoholic, and my mother was the person who reacted violently to his drinking. My mother's father was alcoholic. And I have a little purse that I keep in my, in my possessions today, a little tiny leather coin purse, just tiny, with the two little beaded top, you know, little snap open. Inside of that little purse is an obituary for my grandfather in six cents. And I don't know, it's all worn. And every time I look at that little purse, in fact, when I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I went home to look at it again, because to me, it just symbolizes the devastation and the destruction of the disease of alcoholism. My father's brother died in a gutter in Chicago, and it took them about two weeks to locate my, uh, to, to find out, figure out who he was and to locate my father. Um, he had been um, a skid row drunk for many years. Um, throughout my childhood, there were many occasions when my mom and dad would bring him in off the street, clean him up, take him to the VA hospital. They'd get him well. My father would get him a job in a butcher store. He'd work a few weeks, and then all of a sudden, the family was up in a turmoil because Uncle Jimmy had disappeared again and he was off and running in the disease of alcoholism. I have a brother who lives in another state. He's nine years younger than I am and he is dying of the disease of alcoholism. He has cirrhosis of the liver and pancreatitis. Um, my father, of course, was an alcoholic. My sister married an alcoholic and it's just, you know, um, the, the family is just full of the disease. Some people say when you are a person like me and have so many alcoholics in your life that you could be a carrier. <laughs> um, I hope somebody mentioned this weekend that, you know, that they hope that their change in attitude um, 
brought around the change in the family, and I know for us it, it's true. So I was born into this alcoholic home in Chicago, and uh, before I was very old, a lot of the characteristics that I was to carry with me until I got into this program began to form. Because I reacted to the disease of alcoholism, my mother reacted to the disease of alcoholism, and the characteristics began to form. So I'm sorry to tell you that I would, I would really love to be able to blame my husband for uh, the mess I was in when I walked in the doors of Al-Anon, but it wasn't his fault. <laughs> um, I, I had financial insecurity, which started because the family that I was raised in was just coming out of the Depression. My mom and dad were, uh, were raised in families that didn't have a lot of money, and they stood in bread lines. So when they got married and they started to put their lives together and... and money was a big deal and whenever I would ask for money as I got a little bit older it was always there wasn't enough or you can't have that or that's too much or whatever so money became um, something that I looked at almost as a god I had low self-esteem from that family um, a lot of that had to do with my mother's reaction towards me she was restless irritable and discontent um, she took a lot of that anger out on me I was the only child for about seven years and I took the brunt of all that I know at a very early age that I made a decision that if I ever got married and if I ever had children, I would not do those things to my children. And I don't have to stand here and tell you um, that I, I became all those things and more. I became very frightened of, of angry people in that family. Uh, there was a lot of fighting between my mother and father. You know, the fighting would start before he went out to drink. The fighting would go on while he was drinking, and it would continue on and even be worse after he had gotten home. There was always a long period of silence in my home after my mother and father had had one of these fights over his drinking, and um, they wouldn't speak to each other for a long period of time, and I was used as a pawn in that. My father would ask me to speak to my mother, and my mother would ask me to speak to my father, and finally one day I would come home from school or from playing outside, and I would find that they were speaking again, and it was like the air in that house had lifted, it had gotten thin again, and you could walk in that house and breathe, and, but it wasn't a very long period of time before it would all start again. I, I had sibling rivalry in that house. When I was seven years old, my mother announced to me that we were going to have another baby, and I was having a very difficult time getting any attention in that family, because alcoholism takes all the attention. And I, and you know, I became very loud. I became very obnoxious. I would go out and try to get attention from my peers, from my relatives, from my mother. I became loud. I became bigger than life. And as a consequence, my mother would say to me, Beverly, lower your voice. Lower your voice. She was always saying, lower your voice. And so I'd start to tell her something. I'd be really enthusiastic. I wanted to get through my story. And she'd say, lower your voice. And then I'd start again in a little bit lower and lower your voice. And by the time I got done, it's like, I don't even want to tell you at all. So then I had an attitude problem, you know. And, and I didn't think that I was important. So I would go out to my friends and I would get, just do dumb things. Just anything to get a laugh or to get somebody's attention. So I had this sibling rivalry. My sister was born. Um, and um, from the very beginning, I didn't like her. And I spent my entire life trying to maim her, hurt her, call her names, belittle her in any way. And I, and I had later learned that I was trying to make somebody look small so that I would look big. I was later to find out as we became adults that my, my sister held me in very high esteem and had always cherished our friendship, but I did my utmost throughout our entire life in that home to destroy any kind of relationship that we could have possibly had. The only um, unconditional love that I believe I experienced before I got into the rooms of Al-Anon was from my grandmother. And I stand five feet eight inches tall, and my grandmother was 4'11". And she was about 4'11 wide and 4'11 high, and she was the, a real grandmother. I mean, I'm a grandmother, and I don't look... <laughs> you know, my grandmother didn't look like, like grandmothers look today. You can't even tell some of us are grandmothers, and most of us. But my grandmother looked the way a grandmother should look. She wore an apron, you know, house dress. They used to call them house dresses. And they were usually, a lot of times, they were made out of flower sacks. And, and she made them herself. And she um, lived for six months out of the year with our family. And six months out of the year, she lived with my mother's family. Because alcoholism, my grandfather's death, left her penniless. And she had no alternative but to live with the family. And so we took turns keeping my grandmother until she died when I was about 17 years old. 
But my grandmother not only made her little house dresses out of the out of the flower sacks, she also wore an apron. And you know, grandmothers back there always had a needle in a thread. There was always a needle in the thread hanging. She always had a hanky in her pocket, and and they were like generic hankies. Whoever needed their nose blowed got the same old hanky. You never knew where that hanky had been, you know, before you got your nose blowed. But one of the things that she did for me, I had long hair, and she used to rip up rags and she'd curl my hair. And, and make me um, curls that would last for a month or two, I swear, you know, but I felt so loved. If I got a cold, she'd rub my chest with Vicks, and when my mother got angry because I was the one for a long time that she took her anger out, my grandmother would say, Sylvie, don't hit her. And then my mother would take me aside and she'd say, you wait until your grandmother goes home, I'll get you. You know, I'm gonna get you. I went through all the things, you know, I never knew what was gonna set my mother off. We could be sitting having breakfast, living, listening to Don McNeil in the breakfast club, and, and I had to be leaving out the door to school on the third call to breakfast, and some mornings I could just get up and eat my oatmeal and walk out the door, and it would be fine. If she and my father had had a bad night that night, I could be sitting there eating my oatmeal, waiting for the third call to breakfast, and I could be on the floor, or she'd smack me with a belt, or, or throw my cereal on my head, or got, I mean, it was just all kinds of things. So. You live with that kind of a thing where you never know. You're never sure. You're never sure what's going to happen next. You're never sure if the house is going to be quiet. You're never sure if somebody's going to be angry. You're never going to be sure if you're going to get hit. You know, it was just, it's just those things. And I know today that it was just a normal, average alcoholic home. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And you, and you turn up with a lot of scars out of a deal like that. But thank God, you know, this program offers us a place where we can heal together. So that's what I was like. I, when we were in fourth grade, when I was in fourth grade, we bought a little house in the suburbs and I managed to get hooked up with a bunch of friends and for whatever reason, I, from that time until I was a senior in high school, I didn't have that driving need to be the center of attention. I felt fairly comfortable with these kids. They, oh, I stayed with these same kids for many, many years. We were, for the most part, good kids. The worst thing we ever did, you know, was we, we stole cigarettes from our families and we learned how to smoke real early. Now, I don't, it took me, you know, a long time to finally get over that, but, you know, it was what we did and it was the worst thing that I did, just about. And um, so I ran around with these kids, went to the youth center, we learned how to dance, we watched American Bandstand, and, you know, we were just pretty much, I ran around with a good crowd of kids. But if you would have listened to my mother, talk, you know, I was just rotten, you know, I was just rotten to the core. And, and so when I was a senior in high school, the summer before um, I was a senior, my father lost his job where he'd been working for many years, and he was given an, an opportunity for employment in Ogden, Utah, and in the summer in between my junior and senior year, we moved. And it was a, one of the, the most devastating things that ever happened to me because, you know, I didn't realize how much. I depended on my friends. I depended on not only their friendships, but their homes. Because I went through, I, I, as many children that are in alcoholic homes, I, I stayed away from that house as much as it was absolutely possible. I'd get my work done, get out of there, you know. Um, one of the other things I wanted to tell you is I became a perfectionist. Um, my mother would give me some things to do when I was always striving for her, uh, for her approval. And no matter what I did for her, it was never enough. It was, you know, it was okay except for, there was always that little margin of error that wasn't exactly perfect. And I, I was striving for her approval until the day she died in 1978. I just wanted her just one time to say you did good. Um, so we moved to Ogden, Utah, and it was, a, it was kind of a fun thing before I went. I, I, Spent a lot of time in other people's homes. I knew that there was something there that was more comfortable than was ever available in my home. They were places where we were welcomed as children, you know, come in, sit down, have dinner with us. None of those things ever happened at our house. Children were supposed to be seen and not heard. There was no room or no time for kids to come to our home. They weren't welcome. And even if I ever dared bring a child or a friend of mine home, I never knew it was going to be one of those horrible days and my mother would embarrass me in front of my friends. And, you know, I'd feel like I wanted to wear a paper bag over my head for the next month or move to Alaska. Or I would have thoughts of slitting my wrists and just dying because I'd be so embarrassed at the way my mother had been in front of some of my friends. So it was really a big risk to take to bring anybody into my home, so I spent a lot of time away in these places that were 
peaceful. And I really, today I think back and, I, and I'm so grateful for all those people who welcomed me into their home and made me feel comfortable. So I moved to Utah, and I'm excited about moving to Utah. It's a geographic. You know, everything's going to be different. We're going to get a new house. Dad's going to have a new job. There's going to be mountains. It's going to, you know, it's drier there. It's not, there's not going to be the crime that there was in the city. It was going to be a new beginning. But as, you know, as we know, we got to Utah, and we brought the disease of alcoholism with us. And it was only a short period of time before my mother and father were fighting as usual, um, and I didn't have anywhere to go this time. I was there all by myself. I was isolated. By the time you're a senior in high school, everybody's got their little cliques, and here I was, the odd, the odd man. Not only was I the odd man, I looked like the odd man because I had styled my dress code according to uh, American Bandstand. You know, all of my friends, you know, we dressed like them and we'd get so excited, couldn't wait to get home from school, turn that television on, watch that show, and it was an exciting time. And I got to Utah dressed like American Bandstand, and I found out that the girls there were mostly of the Mormon faith and they dressed a lot different than that. <laughs> Very disappointing. Everything matched. Everything matched. And they were so, um, I mean, it was just so perfect. So anybody who looked like me, was hanging out at the Spud Nut Donut Shop, and they were riding Harley Davidson motorcycles, and I didn't belong in there with, those, with the Mormon girls, and I didn't belong at the donut shop, and my mom and dad are fighting worse than I had ever seen them fight before. My mom ran away from home twice or three times that year, and they played that game. I'm not going to tell you where I'm at. Do you know the kind of tension that that puts on three little kids when you don't know where your mother is, and your father's starting a new job, and he's, and he's just beside himself because she doesn't know if she's dead or alive, and she knows she's got him. You know, the games. I watched the games. And I had a lot of ideas about, you know, if I ever got married and if I ever had children, I wouldn't move them when they were seniors, and I, and I wouldn't uh, play those games. I was going to be a whole different kind of a mother. I was going to be more like my grandmother. I sat in my grandmother's lap until almost just shortly before she died. I was 17 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall. You know, I drowned at that poor little lady. But I sat in her lap because it was a place of comfort. And I wanted to be able to offer that kind of love to my children. You know, and I had all those visions in my mind. And as television, the programs came on, and we got to watch Ozzie and Harriet and, and June Cleaver and Beaver and all those people, you know, and we saw the happy family and the man went off to work and came home and had dinner and they mowed the lawn and all these wonderful things happened. I just knew that was exactly the way I wanted to do it. And I figured as long as I knew it, I could do it. You see, but the disease of alcoholism didn't let that happen for me. Just because I knew it, it didn't give me the ability to be able to pass that along. Um, Shortly after um, we lived in Utah, I graduated from high school and my father got me a job in a defense plant. And I don't know how long exactly I was working there, but one day our, one of our calculators in our department broke, and this man came to fix our calculator. And he carried the toolkit, and he came in and took all of it apart, and there was this, like he, it was like we had, in a, on a department-wide scale, switched on as the world turns. This man <laughs> had this, you know, I mean, he had like this soapbox light. He had been dating somebody for a number of years, married her. They were married just a couple of months. They obviously weren't getting along, and it seems that he was separated from her and that his clothes were hanging from a pipe in the office where he worked, and there was a cot there, but it wasn't there all the time because sometimes they'd make up and the clothes would be gone and the cot would get folded up. And every time he came into our department to fix the calculator, it, it was like switching on the soapbox, and we'd hear all the gossip about George's life. But... I'm watching him. I, had, uh, I hadn't had a date in a year. I gained a lot of weight just from frustration that year. And this man is just, I mean, he is everything I could have imagined. His life obviously was exciting. And as he kept coming back and forth and fixing the calculators, I'm watching this. And then they had a layoff, and I had low seniority. And lo and behold, I end up working across the street at the same building where his office was in the back room. So I got to watch this for a couple of months up close and personal. And it was just as entertaining there as it was when he would just come in. And he drove a huge Oldsmobile convertible. It was white and light blue. And, and he, um, he had a duck tail. 
and he had a flat top, and he walked around with this brush, and he was always brushing his hair back, you know. And he'd come in, it was, Utah in the summer is hot, it's not as humid as it is here, but it's hot. And in the back room there was a refrigerator, and in that refrigerator was not Coca-Cola and, and, and people's lunch, there was beer in that refrigerator, and he'd go in there, and the, it was, could be morning, noon, afternoon, he'd go back there, get him a beer, and then he'd push that tie back, and he'd open up a couple of his buttons, and, and I'm getting to notice he's got this really good-looking hairy chest, and he's got the Oldsmobile, and I, you know, and he's cocky. He smoked a cigarette, you know, and, and he kind of would hang that out the side of his mouth, and he's got his beer. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but there was a part of me that we had some common sense, because I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, there's something really wrong with him. And then the other part of me is going, oh, man, he's really a piece of work, you know. And, and um, one day I had enough common sense to say to the secretary sitting next to me, could ever be married to him anyhow. And, um, you know, she shrugged her shoulders at me, and I kept watching him, and shortly thereafter I got a chance to go back to the defense plant, and I don't know how long it was till he came back to fix another one of our calculators, and he was officially separated, and he asked me out on a date. And I was so excited about it, I took him home to meet my dad and my mom. And my dad just loved him. I just loved him right off the bat. My mother hated him. She, just, she said, he's trouble. He's too old for you. He's, you know, he's been married before. Why do you want to get yourself mixed up with that? Don't even go out with him. Well, that's all I needed. You know how we are. That's all I needed. If she said no, I didn't like her anyhow, and this was a good way to get even. Besides that, I adored my father. He liked him. That was good enough for me. So we set out to date for the next year and week. And um, if I had known anything about the disease of alcoholism, I mean really known about the disease of alcoholism, I would have known I was in for a lot of trouble. A couple of people warned me, like my mother, but she didn't know what the alcoholism was either, I don't think. And, you know, I watched him lose cars, and we'd go find the car, and he'd be late for a date, and we'd, you know, he'd apologize, and then he wouldn't show up for dates at all. And, of course, I thought it was all about me, because I didn't have any self-worth anyhow, and I thought I was really darn lucky to be dating this good-looking guy. And, and I was glad that I had him, and, and, you know, I would do anything, and so, of course, if he didn't show up for a date, it had to be I was too tall, I was too fat. You know, my hair was the wrong color. We didn't live in the right neighborhood. I really would do a job on myself. And then the next day he would call me and apologize. And he'd say, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, he says, well, what happened was, uh, Tracy just asked if we could go out and shoot a little shuffleboard. And he says, and I ordered a beer. And he says, and we played a little shuffleboard. And he said, the next thing I knew, it's, it's late, and Mary's throwing us all out the front door, and she wants to lock up and go home. And, um, and he says, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> and, you know, next week would come, and, and he would miss the date, and I'd go through the whole thing about how I wasn't good enough for him and how I was lucky to have him, and I'd take him no matter what. And, and you know, and he'd call the next day and tell me about how they went out to have one beer and play a little shuffleboard, and, and Mary threw him out the front door, but he was never going to do it again. And I didn't know then that when the man took a drink, the drink took a drink, and the drink took a man, and it was called alcoholism. But I took that personally. So we did all the things that you do in, a, in an alcoholic courtship, you know, and, and a year and a week later we ended up getting married. We went on a little two-day honeymoon, got back Sunday night, Monday morning. He got up and went to work, and he didn't come home for the next 22 years. <laughs> Nine months and two days after we were married, I had my first son, Steve. And I did not have the foggiest idea how to take care of a child. My sister had done all the babysitting in our house, and I was out of there, so I did not have a clue how to take care of a child. So I enlisted my, enlisted my sister to come over on a number of occasions to help me learn how to change diapers and take care of the little belly button and how to feed them. And I tried to nurse, and I did that for a while, and, and he's not coming home from work, and I think there's something wrong with me, and I got pregnant too fast, and we had a lot of bills. And, you know, and it never, ever, ever occurred to me that we had alcoholism. There was always something wrong with me or the environment that I created, and I couldn't blame it on the baby because Stephen was one of the most delightful babies that there ever was. He just did everything on time. I guess he knew when he got here that he had a dumb mother that didn't know how to take care of him, so he was really a good, good baby. 
As a matter of fact, it's kind of a joke now. If he had not been such a good baby, possibly there wouldn't have been Scott. But Stephen was such a good baby, we decided to try for a second. And exactly two years later, we gave birth to our second child, Scott. And, you know, he wasn't coming home, and I was creating the environment in my home just like my mother created, the environment where I was always angry. Um, I, I never knew how to get him home. I would be calling him on the telephone, you know, begging him to come home, and he, he'd tell me he'd be there in a minute. Uh, you know, get off my back. Leave me alone. And, you know, all along, it's just I'm, my self-worth is going down and down. What am I doing wrong? Why can't I make him come home? What could I do different? And I'm a people pleaser. I'm afraid of angry people, so I'm a people pleaser. So I don't go out into the world and start fights to get rid of the anger that was building up inside of me, anger that had probably started to build up inside of me the day I was born. It was building and building, and of course the only two people in that family that got the brunt of that anger was my two children. And it went on, even though I promised when I was a small child that I was going to be different, I wasn't going to do that to my children, I did it. I screamed at them, I embarrassed them in front of their friends, they began to play as they grew up, they played other places, they found safety and, and nurturing and comfort in other people's homes, they came home only when it was absolutely necessary, they didn't bring friends home because they didn't know what was going to set me off. There's two things that happened that I'll tell you that really kind of tell you exactly how I what cousin I had become. When Stephen was about two years old, Kurt, I perfectionism, he vacuumed. And they expect anybody to ever know carpet again. It has to stay, not dare settle home. You know, if dare, if they smoke, ash, put a cigarette and ashtray in your home. If you get the Sunday, you don't dare wrap it because it's a, you know, you don't get out of bed and my not make your bed really the way to be done. Dress and mask, everything had to match. It's just all at it. I learned that perfection is my idea the way things should be. I didn't know that then. I, my way was the way, and it was my way away, and if you didn't go away, you got it in a lot, a lot of trouble. So I started this pattern off, and this diapered baby takes a Tonka truck over a newly vacuumed rug. I grab a wooden spoon because I am furious, just furious that day. And I don't know what made me furious that day, but I have this kind of anger that starts to boil inside of me and it comes up and up and if I start, you know, if you just kind of act on it just a little bit before you even know it, you've lost control. And I've got a diapered baby, a wooden spoon, and I am just about as angry as I've ever been in my life and I started to beat that child with a wooden spoon. And the voice inside of me said, Beverly, if you hit him again, you're going to kill him. And I, and I listened to that voice that day, and I put that baby down, I put the spoon down, and I made a decision that I would never hit either one of my children again. But what I did do was, you know, I, I had such a need to just always be in control of things. So if they did anything wrong, I might grab them under here and pinch them until they were black and blue, or I might pull their ear or grab them by their hair until I ended up with a handful of hair. I belittled them about what they wore, about the friends they ran around with, I belittled them about the grades that they made. They're, they're, they were both very athletic boys, and although I sat and watched all of their games and all of their competitions, you know, they were never enough. They didn't go fast enough. You know, if you would have just paid attention, you could have been, you could have been right up there with the best of them. And, and um, I just didn't know how to do it. You know, I'd go to bed at night, and I'd have this thick knot in my feeling, and I'd say to myself, Beverly, you did it again. You know, you did it again. One day, the kids, it's a rainy day, they bring a bunch of kids, they dare bring a bunch of kids in the house, set up a Monopoly game in my basement, and they're down there playing Monopoly, and you know, it was another one of those days where I noticed something out of order upstairs, kitty litter, coats, who knows what it was. I went flying down those stairs like a mad woman, screaming at the top of my lungs at the kids about not doing whatever it was that they were supposed to have done, and I always felt justified. I always felt justified. And, and they, the little kids scattered, the game got put away, and I don't know which one of my little boys came upstairs and they said, Mom, why do you always have to embarrass us in front of our friends? And I didn't know why I had to do that. You know, I didn't know why. I didn't know why I couldn't get him to get off the couch at night and come to bed with me. I thought that there was something wrong with me. He didn't want my companionship, you know. And I was later to find out, you know, he called me a lot of names in that process, and I began to believe what he called me. And, in, the, in our ODAT book, it says, you know, just because somebody calls you a tree, it doesn't make you a tree. But I didn't know that then. So I took all of that hurt, all of that frustration, all of the anger, 
all of the things that happened to you as a result of living an active alcoholism, I took it out on my children. By the time my boys were 11 and 13 years old, they are experimenting with drugs and alcohol down on the beach in the community where we live. I'm fortunate today to know that my husband was, um, in spite of his alcoholism, he progressed up the corporate ladder, and I always got a paycheck. He handed his paycheck over to me every two weeks, you know, and I paid, was able to pay the bills, and uh, we always had food, clothing, and shelter, which I know today are the spiritual truths of life. You know, if we have those things, that's all we need, and we always had those things. Not in abundance, but we did have all of our needs taken care of. I always had electricity, I always had water, and I always had a roof over my head. So um, my boys, we've, we've progressed now. He's, we've moved from Utah to Pennsylvania, and then he was promoted again into New Jersey. And um, we're living there, and we live by a beautiful lake in that community. And my boys are down there, and they're experimenting with drugs and alcohol. When they're a, a sophomore, um, a freshman and a, and a junior in high school, my husband got another promotion, which took us to Louisville, Texas, where we live today. And uh, by the time the family moved to Texas, we had the same dream my mom and dad had. You know, we were going to move to Texas. We were going to have a new home. We were going to start over. George was going to be making more money than we'd ever made before. The kids were going to get a new opportunity. But you see, I moved them when they were in high school, and it devastated those boys just as much as it devastated me. But I didn't have the emotional ability to comfort them. You know, I just said, that's ah, going to be okay. You know, we'll get down there. You can get in the wrestling. You can run cross country. You can get on the swim team. Everything's going to be great. Stephen was going to be 16. We'll get you a pickup truck. You know, it's going to be great. We got a new house. It was a bigger house than any that we'd ever owned. It was in a nice community. My husband's job was wonderful, and alcoholism had progressed terribly. We were separated for about three months during the move, and by the time I got there, I noticed alcoholism for the first time, and yet I couldn't put a finger on it. All I knew is that something in that house was terribly wrong. Now, my sons are also, they got little part-time jobs, but you cannot pay for the kind of habit they had developed on what they were making stocking groceries in the grocery store. So they were starting to steal from me. And I was in so much that I wanted you to know that. And he's going to stand up there at the open meeting and he's going to announce to the entire world that he's George Burnett, an alcoholic, and get one of those little silver things and put it in his pocket in front of everybody. And I just didn't think I could bear the humiliation. And that was, the, that was the attitude that I had the day that my husband picked up his desire chip, and he's sober 15 and a half years on that desire chip today. And I live in sobriety, and I'm really grateful for that. And um, on March 30th, Scott's out of, me, out of uh, the, the hospital now, and we're going off to an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on a Sunday morning, and Stephen walked in from the grocery store, and for the very first time in my life, I saw a drunk. I saw a drunk. And I said to my son, Scott, I said, my God, Steve's drunk. And Scott goes, God, Mom. <laughs> He's worse than me. <laughs> now, I didn't think that was possible, you know. And, and so magic had happened because I already knew that you only told me the truth. For years, I don't know how you had been, but I'd been sitting at neighbors' tables having coffee and you had been saying to me, Beverly, if I was you, I wouldn't put up with that. I wouldn't put up with a man who went to work at 5 in the morning and came home 10 at night and he's drunk and you save all these meals and I wouldn't, I'd go, I, you know, I'd get myself a job and I'd be on my way. Well, that wasn't my answer. You know, I just wanted somebody to listen to me and I had pain in me that I didn't even know what was the source of it was and nobody had my answer. And so I spent hours talking to people over coffee cups, hoping that maybe some, somebody along the line had an answer for what was going on in my house. I know that a lot of the times when I screamed, I screamed with windows open, and sometimes I thought to myself, I think I'm screaming in case somebody would hear me and know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so here he's, um, my son is, um, is, is, comes home drunk, we go to the meeting, and I find out that you only tell me the truth. You, I learned to listen to you say things like, you know, I had a child like that and I know what to do. You didn't share with me anything but your experience, strength, and hope, and it was so comforting to me. So I went to this man, George, and I went to this man that he, they were in their second marriage. She had two boys, he had two boys, and they had two boys. Now, the, the combination of the six children was an interesting lot. 
They had one in jail, one in college, one in the street, one at home, <laughs> one in grade school, and one that was working on his story, you know? And, and I mean, who else would you go to if you were like me? I mean, they obviously had our answer. So I went to him and I said, you know, what are we gonna do? We think Stephen's got an alcoholic. And he said, you have a choice. And I had never, ever heard that word before, that I had an opportunity to make a decision for myself. I didn't know I could do that. And this man said, you have a choice. You can either ask him to join you in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or leave. Leave? <laughs> I thought if I gave birth to these children that they were mine to raise no matter what they did. And they had broken my, they had broken doors, they had broken windows, they had wrecked my car, they had stolen from me. But I thought because I gave birth to them, they were mine to raise no matter what they did. And so when he said I could ask him to leave, I could hardly believe that that was, I, I mean, I, so we got home from the meeting that day and Stephen slept all afternoon and when he woke up we told him you can either join us, come to Alcoholics Anonymous, your brother's sober, your dad's sober, I'm going to Al-Anon, we're trying to make a better life here and you can either join us in recovery or you can leave. Now he didn't like the word leave either and I'm afraid of angry people and I was really afraid to tell him about leaving because I figured you know he was going to leave and never come back and he, he left at 80 miles an hour in reverse but about 15 minutes later he called me from the grocery store and he says, to me, okay, mom, you know, you win. <laughs> I'll go to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I'm okay. I want to tell him it's not one meeting. It's the rest of your life, you know, decide to join us. And we get in the car. It's a Monday. It's March 30th, actually. It's a Monday. And, and we're riding down to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. My husband's driving. The kids are in the back seat. My husband catches a glimpse of Stephen in the rearview mirror, and he's wearing a Coors hat, tequila t-shirt, kitty shoes, holy jeans. And my husband says, I am not taking my son to Alcoholics Anonymous dressed like that. Well, we started the family argument, you know, it's okay, he'll be all right, don't worry about it, Scott's telling him, Dad, it's okay, you know, Steve can wear anything he wants to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and George says it was more than he could take, he was not walking in the door with that kid dressed like that, then he hopped out of the car on 407. Now, my first thought was, I gotta fix that, I got, he can't go home, there was still some liquor left at our house, and, you know, if he goes home, he's going to get drunk, and, and, you know, what am I going to do? So I was going to leave the car, but the voice spoke to me again, and it says, get in the car and drive. So I got to the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I walked in the front door, a lady named Millie said to me, who is this? And I said, this is Steve, our other son, and she said, Bobby, come over here and talk to this boy, this is Beverly's other son. And she says, now their whole family is here. And Bobby says, I'm not going to talk to any more kids. He says, you talk to the kids, they don't stay sober. I'm not messing with them anymore. But the meeting was about to start, so I stood in the doorway and I watched my son Scott nudge my son Stephen, and he got up and got a desire chip. And that was March 30th of 1981, and my son is sober 15 and a half years on that desire chip. And I have a lot to be grateful for as far as that is concerned. So we began to go to meetings, and they always called us precious, and I figured as long as we were there, we would get to stay. I didn't realize what alcoholism really was. And one day, an alcoholic came up to me, and he said, Beverly, we're watching Scott in these meetings, and we just don't really think that he has the burning desire to stay sober, and we highly recommend that you buy yourself a big book and start to learn what the disease of alcoholism really is, because if Scott doesn't make it, um, you're going to have to you're going to have to have this book as your resource because you can't take this disease personally anymore. And I thought I was terribly offended by that, but I got a big book. You know, I thought, well, I'll show him. And I got a big book. And Scott didn't stay sober very long, and he was out again. And and we had him at home, and and his life got unmanageable. And I had enough Al-Anon, and Steve's sober, and George's sober, and they're going to lots of meetings, and and things in our house are changing, and we're on that wonderful pink cloud and Scott starts to drink again. And so he went off and, and he started to break things and steal things and abuse my home. And by now, Stephen's sponsor had said to me, you know what, Beverly, your house is a privilege. And, and, you, and you don't deserve to have it, it treated like that. And you know, you have the right to ask him to leave. So I prayed about it and I went to a lot of meetings and, and shortly thereafter i had the courage to ask my son scott to leave and he lived out in the streets for a while he was just 16 years old and he stayed out there for a while i don't know how long we continued to go to meetings it was so hard for me to, to just 
be okay, you know, and people would say to me, the alcoholics would say to me, Beverly, there's every chance that Scott is going to ride the dump truck all the way to the dump. You have to stay in this program. You have to continue to grow. And I, I started to learn that I could be happy whether the alcoholic was drinking or not. And I started to learn that no matter what Scott was doing out there, it didn't need to affect my peace of mind. And I didn't learn that in big slices. I learned that in tiny little pieces, parts of me. Every once in a while, I could feel a little bit of peace, even though I knew that he was out there and that his life was really going down the, down the tubes. And, and um, he broke his leg. And he came home, and, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, when are you enabling? When are you not enabling? When do you detach? When don't you detach? There are all, you are giving so many opportunities for choices, and when does one thing apply and when does it not apply? There's so many variables in this program when you're dealing with children, you know. They're my, he's my child, and yet he's an alcoholic, and I didn't know, you know, it's just everything that I needed to do. I would go to a meeting and say, you know, what should I do now? What should I do now? I relied on you for everything. You had all the answers that I needed, and I, I leaned on you heavily for my answers. So we ended up getting the legs set. I bought him a big duffel bag. My husband and I made some phone calls and ended up sending him to a treatment center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he stayed there for 45 days. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Steve's life because it's truly a miracle. And what I know today is that Stephen's life is a miracle. And, and I am so grateful that one child's life went in one direction because the pain of watching what happened to the other child would not have been bearable if I would have, I had to know absolutely that miracles in this program were possible. And so Stephen's life turned into a miracle. And as the result of an inventory, um, first of all, I want to tell you about Bobby because he was our first miracle. First of all, he taught Stephen how to pray on his knees and to be grateful for a day of sobriety. And I had the privilege of listening to my 17-year-old son say his morning prayers, and he'd say, Dear God, thank you for this day of sobriety. Amen. And he'd go to bed. And at quarter to 12, Bobby would call him and say, It's time to get to a meeting. We'll go to a meeting, have some pizza, you can go back and go to sleep. And so they'd get up and go to a meeting and come back, and Stephen would go to bed. And then about 7 o'clock, Bobby would call back, and it's time to get up. We'll go into another meeting, and they're going to two meetings or six or seven meetings a week, and we are really on the road to recovery. And I'm using this program for all I'm worth. And I'm listening to my son pray, and I'm watching Bobby sponsor him, and it was a real privilege because, you see, Bobby set his alarm clock for 1 o'clock in the morning, and he would get up and go to the Tom Thumb and sit with Stephen at the grocery store during the time that the kids went on break because that was when they did a little dope and a little beer drinking out in the parking lot, and Bobby sat there with him, and they would read the big book, and they would talk about recovery, and when break time was over with, Bobby would go home and go back to bed, and Stephen would go about stocking groceries. And then Bobby would call in the morning to make sure he had gotten home okay and that he was sober that day. And he'd remind him to thank God for that day of sobriety. It took me eight years in the program of Al-Anon to feel humble enough to kneel and pray. But I had had the privilege of hearing my son pray on his knees from the very day I got into this program. But it took me that long to break through that ego and that self-centeredness before one day I could finally kneel on my knees to pray. But I had a wonderful example of my own child. And um, so anyhow, Stephen did a fifth-step inventory with Bobby, and as a result of that, he went to college. Now, he had been given the opportunity. He was accepted at Texas A&M University. The, parchment, the beautiful parchment letter came in the mail, and he kept it for a couple of weeks, and then one day he walked in the bank because it was safe. I wouldn't scream at him in the bank. And he said, Mom, I'm not going to go to college. I've got this great job stocking groceries, and i got a pickup truck. What else could anybody want? You know, And he handed me that letter, and he says, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Mom, but I'm not going. And it was a big disappointment because Stephen was the only, would have been the only child in my, on my side of the family that had ever been able to go to college, and it was such a joy. you know. And I didn't know anything about college. He had gotten himself through the SATs all on his own, and he walked in the bank that day and says, I'm not going. And so Bobby um, had him do the inventory, and you see what Stephen was afraid of. And it's part of the inventory that's listed in the big book. He just was afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid of failure. You know, he was afraid of public humiliation. And he was going to let that fear stand in the way of an education. And Bobby convinced him that if he went to a small college, maybe if he failed, nobody would even notice. So he went to a small uh, junior college in, in Dallas. 
And after two years, he not only graduated, but he graduated with honors. And my husband and I got to sit in the auditorium and watch that little graduation happen. And we were so proud of him. And in the meantime, he had reapplied to Texas A&M University. And the second time they don't send the beautiful parchment letter, they just send a little letter and says, you know, thank you for reapplying and you've been accepted. But five semesters later, we got to go back to Texas A&M and sit in a really beautiful auditorium there and watch Stephen walk across the stage one more time and collect another degree. And it was one of the most proud moments in my life because, you know, I thought to myself, there was this kid. It's, it's now December of 1985, and he's walking across the stage at Texas A&M, and he's got a diploma in his hand. And there was this kid that my husband caught a glimpse of in the back, in the, the rearview mirror of the car, and he's got, you know, the Coors hat and the tequila t-shirt and, and the titty shoes. And I thought, you know, only but in Alcoholics Anonymous could you get from the back seat of that car to the stage at Texas A&M University. And I had so much gratitude for the programs that both of us were involved in. And Stephen got a recruit job and went off to work for a nice corporation down in Houston. He stayed with that company about five years, built up some knowledge and some self-esteem, and he went on to another job, and he was ready to find him a woman. And he knew exactly who he was looking for. I promise you that. He knew exactly who he was looking for, and he was out on the search to find her. And one day he gleefully called me from a, he had been at a bar actually, and, but he had learned, you know, when you're that young, somehow or other he learned how to go out and have fun and not, and not be affected by what was going on. He just never touched anything when he went in, he just went to dance. And he went into this place and, and she was sitting there and he called me from a payphone and he says, Mom, she's here. And I said, who? And he says, the girl up in a mirror, she's here. And he went up and introduced himself, him to her, and they found out they both had maroon Hondas. <laughs> and they knew that it was, it was destiny, you know, it was like sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> and they dated, and it was one of the most wonderful things to watch, because I thought, you know, here he had the program, and he was doing it the right way. And, and he just loved her so much right from the beginning. And, but you see, he failed to tell her he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, because he felt if he told her that, that she would just be off. But he set her up. You know how you guys are. You know, he, he did a number on her. He took her out to a beautiful restaurant with candlelight and the waiter with the towel over his arm, and he fed her well and, and um, talked to her, and there was music, and the man with the violin walked through the table. To, I mean, he really did a job on her. And he said after dinner, he says, you know, there's something I've got to tell you. And she said, what? And she was really kind of leery. And he says, I'm an alcoholic. He says, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober 10 years. And she says, oh, my God, that's wonderful. She says, my father is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my mother is an Al-Anon. And I went, to, I went to a convention in Missouri uh, in August. They got married in October of 19, I don't remember, 92. And her mother drove from Kansas City to meet me in a room just like this on a Saturday morning. And it was one of the, you know, another one of those wonderful miracle things that happened in this program and nowhere else, you know. And I think they happen here. It's not that God just hands all these miracles out to us. I think that we learn here to look for them. And we look for them more and more each day. And, and I have learned how to do that. So Stephen and Heidi went on and got married. And last September 17th, they gave birth to a little one-year-old girl. And because I have learned how to walk the walk and not talk the talk so much to my children, because, see, they don't want to listen to me. They watch what we're doing. They watched George and I walk the walk, and because of that, you know, the, the relationships healed and, and love formed, and Heidi began to, to love us and trust us, and she invited us to come and be a part of the birth. And we happened to be home that weekend, which was really unusual. I mean, we knew this baby was going to be born, but George and I worked on the weekends, and we were really frightened that we weren't going to be able to be there. But we had a job that was Saturday only that weekend, and it turned out they called at 6 o'clock Sunday morning, and George and I hopped in the car, and we got down there and spent the afternoon while she was in labor. And um, they, the only thing that I didn't get to see was the actual birth, because we had all decided that that was between her and Stephen. But I got to see that baby just a minute or two after it was born, and it was one of the most wonderful privileges. And you see, because I always wanted to be a good mother, and because I didn't know how to do that for my own children, I feel that Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where we get second chances. And I realize that my grandchild is a second chance, 
and, and I've learned from you how to be a good grandmother. And I, and I hop in my car and I get down to Houston just as often as possible because I, I don't want to miss anything with this little girl. And I am so privileged and so proud to be a member of their family and to be invited to come down because I know that there are a lot of mother-in-laws who aren't welcome, and I'm welcome. Now, that's a success story. It's a story built on Alcoholics Anonymous and a story that because Stephen followed the, the winners, you know, and, and, and went along and read the book and went to a bazillion meetings and had a sponsor and did what his sponsor told him, his life is a success. On the other hand, Scott went into the second treatment center, stayed for 45 days, um, and when he came out, he was sober for a period of time. I'm going to a lot of meetings. I'm working with a sponsor. Um, I'm watching the miracles of my life take place, and, um, and it was only by Thanksgiving, I believe, that Scott was drunk again and using drugs again, and a couple of really bizarre things happened. He ended up in a hospital in an overdose and almost died, and we got him out of that, and it was just one thing after another. We, he, then he looked for a period of time like he might be doing well, and I decided we could maybe sign for a car, and then we found out that he had gotten a speeding ticket in a residential area going 80 in a 20 or 25 mile an hour uh, speed zone. And you see, you had also taught me that I could be responsible for myself, and so I decided that I couldn't have my name on the line on the banknote on a car that a kid was driving that irresponsibly. So I repossessed the car, and I went up to my bank officer. I worked in the bank, and I said, told him what was going on, and I said, I need some help to sell this car and get out from under the note. And the man found me, a detail man, and we had the car restored because in the short period of time he owned it, he wrecked it. And we got it restored, and, and they busted and made it real pretty. And the very moment, almost, that the car was brought back from the detail shop, somebody stopped and said that they wanted to buy that car, and the next day it was gone for exactly the amount of money that I needed to pay the note back off. And so I knew that God wanted me to do that. I knew that I was following God's will, because when things work out like that, you know you're in God's will. There was no uh, you know, hidden walls with that. So um, he lived in the streets. He lived in cockroach-infested um, apartments. He was dealing drugs and doing drugs and doing alcohol. And, and I'm reading the big book because I had to continually know what the disease of alcoholism was because, you see, he's watching Stephen with a cute little red Tonka truck and going to college and has a room and his life's in order. And here's this kid living out there with cockroaches and, and people that, you know, we were afraid to be around. And he would call me up and he'd say to me, you love Steve more. And you see, if I wasn't in this program and reading that big book, I would have believed that and the guilt would have eaten me alive. But because I knew that that was alcoholism and he had to hit his own bottom, I was, I was as okay as I could possibly be to let that boy be out there doing what he needed to do. And I don't know how long it was. He met Doreen along the way. She was somebody he knew in high school and they started to date and Scott was managed to keep a job. I don't know how he did it. He was very, very dyslexic. He had an IQ of genius, and he couldn't read or write. So all of this energy came out in creative abilities, and he ended up working for a chef at a big restaurant in Dallas, and the man just adored him and overlooked the fact that he was stealing wine in the wine cellar, and he let him work there anyhow, but one day the problem got so bad the man had no alternative to let him go, and he told him, he said, Scott, I like you a lot, and he says, and I'd love to be able to keep you around here, but he can't because you're stealing from me. Well, you know how alcoholics are. The next day he had a better job in another restaurant and he was off and running. And um, shortly thereafter, he did such a good job with that restaurant, they sent him out with a crew to open restaurants in other parts of the country. And he ended up moving to Orlando, Florida and um, in, in early part of in like January of 1988. And somewhere in that process, they decided they were going to get pregnant and have a baby. They had been married since 1985. You know, that was the most terrible news that I could ever wish to hear, that they were thinking seriously about getting pregnant and bringing a baby into that progression of the alcoholism and the drug addiction. And he was not the only alcoholic in that family. She was drinking and drugging right along with them. And here they were consciously deciding to bring a child into that marriage. And they went ahead, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about that, you know, but you told me about detaching and letting go. And I had a chance to know that, you know, God has no grandchildren. And that, that he would, that if that baby ever did get born, that it would be taken care of. So anyhow, he, um, they had this baby on May um, 12th of 1988, and six months later, Scott got sick. 
and uh, he had respiratory problems, and it wasn't uncommon for him to have grave respiratory problems because it was something chronic within our family genes and also from smoking the marijuana. He was, uh, it was always just something that he had. And they put him in the hospital one late one Saturday night from the emergency room. He went up into intensive care. And Doreen was very angry with me then because, see, I was not always sending the money that they wanted. If they needed something, we UPS, we UPS diapers, we UPS baby food because, see, if you send a drug addict and an alcoholic money, it doesn't go for, the, for what they wanted, but we wanted for sure for this baby to have its needs taken care of. And so my husband and I spent the extra money and sent the things that we thought the baby would need, and it made them very angry. And so what they did was they used the baby as a pawn. And, they, and so I didn't get to know when she broke her first tooth, and I didn't get to know when she took her first step, and I didn't get to know a lot of things about what she was doing, when she crawled, when she sat, because, see, I didn't send money, so it was the way that they got even with me. So when he got into the hospital, I called the hospital, and I said, could you please tell me what's wrong with my son? And they wouldn't tell me what was wrong with him. And, you know, it was another thing where I had to place Scott in God's hands and try to forgive Doreen for this and, and to be okay with what was going on. And, and um, when Scott got out of the hospital after the 10th day, he called on the phone and he said, Mom, I'm home from the hospital now. And he said, that wasn't just ordinary pneumonia that I have. He says, I had pneumonia. I'm in full-blown AIDS and I'm going to die. And he was 24 years old, a six-month-old child. Now, we had just brought my father home from California. He, we had just learned two weeks before that that my father's cancer had come out of remission. And I called my sponsor about five minutes after I got that phone call from Scott, and I said, you promised me that God would never give me more than I can handle, but I think this is going a little too far. And she said to me, Beverly, you write in a journal every day, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. And I said, you knew that. And she said, well, I want to I tell you what to do. She said, I don't write in a journal, but she says, what I want you to do is to know that God works a miracle in your life every single day. And she said, before you write in your journal page, I want you to write a miracle at the top of the page because there's going to be days when you think that you're walking alone, but if you write down where you've seen the evidence of God in your life that day, on a day when you can't feel God, you can look back to another page and be reassured that God truly is in your life. I footsteps, and I knew for a long period of time that I kept looking back, and I always felt like I was alone. But I also knew because of these miracles that I'd written on the top of the page that I was being carried and that the set of footprints that I looked back and saw were God's. And I also found a quarter out on the beach. It was rusted and, and green and everything, and the only thing that you could still see on that coin was in God we trust. And I just felt like, you know, it was like a little message out there on the beach for me the other day. But anyhow, um, we had my father, we got to walk through the cancer treatment, and I got to be his daughter. Now, I never had a bad relationship with my father. I just didn't have any relationship with him at all. And as being a member of Al-Anon and learning how to do this right, I could be a really good daughter to my dad, and I took him for his cancer treatment. And one day he said to me, you know, honey, I hate that you have to give up every Tuesday to take me to the doctor. And I said to him, I don't know what else I would rather be doing on Tuesday. And my dad lived with us for about a year and a half, and we had a lot of fun. He went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and, and we took him along with us, and he enjoyed being with the people. I mean, you know, he loved your laughter, he loved your jokes, he loved your food, and that was his entertainment. We just took him to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he just loved you. And so he died on February 10th of 1990, and all of the people who were our friends in Alcoholics Anonymous filled the chapel that day and supported us. Not very many of them had met him personally, but the ones who had known George and I over the last 15 years or over the time, they came and you all supported us. In August after my father died, my son came home from Florida and they brought little, little, our little granddaughter with them and she was just about three years old. And for the next three years, we got to watch and walk with my son through his illness. And it was a real tragic and devastating illness. I don't know how many people in this room have ever known somebody or currently know somebody who is dying of the disease of AIDS, but it's a disease where it takes a strong, healthy body and it takes it and devastates it one opportunistic infection after another, one day after another. And I have watched my son walk more courageously battling that illness than I have ever seen courage in my entire life. And I watched my daughter-in-law and my relationship with her has grown to be something that I cherish today because see, um, because she watched me walk the walk, not talk the talk, to really work this program and bring it into my home 
and to treat her with love and kindness no matter what, all of a sudden she started to open the doors of her heart to me, and one day she said to me, Beverly, you have taught me how to love. And, you know, I have a relationship with this girl today that's beyond anything I could have ever imagined. She's like the daughter I never had. And, it, and if we have a disagreement, in the beginning it used to be, boom, she'd hang up the phone. And I'd call her back and I'd say, honey, just tell me what's wrong. Let's work it out. Boom, she'd hang up the phone. And one day I just yelled in the answering machine. I said, I'm going to keep calling you until we talk this thing out. And so finally she had the courage to talk it out. She was afraid to tell me some little nitpicky thing that had just gotten under her skin that I had done. And I said, you know what? You can tell me anything. And in the beginning she told me a lot of things about me that I didn't like to hear, but she had a lot to unload, a lot of feelings that she had. And today, you know, I can't think of anything that we've disagreed with in, in, since last December. And, you know, we have this wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's real, special and real unique. So we were growing along with that, and she was taking wonderful care of my son, gave him up, and just took so beautiful care of him. And George and I tended to the baby most of the time. And, and um, on uh, February 9th, February 6th, of 1993, my son died. And almost a minute or two after he died, my daughter-in-law looked at me and she says, you know, I'm afraid that you don't want us to be part of the family now that Scott's gone. And she says, we've grown to love you and we want to be a part of the family and I'm not taking no for an answer. You have to feed me and Sarah one day a week. And we picked Tuesday. And ever since the day Scott died till the day, just this Tuesday, every single Tuesday, Doreen and Sarah come for you know, we just, my granddaughter's nutrition not being not any of my business. <laughs> not to take it personally when she doesn't like what I cook. And, um, and we got to listen to her pray after Scott died, you know, and because she heard my prayers and George's prayers and her mom's prayers, she's not afraid to pray in public. It took me eight years, like I told you, to be able to kneel on my knees and pray. But I have a little granddaughter who opens up her heart to God on a regular basis and prays. And, and after Scott died, she talked to her daddy, and we'd like to watch this little kid on a swing talking to her daddy. And, you know, it's just a wonderful thing, you know. I, we've taken her to conferences, and we take her up to Crested View, and we've taken her up there four years in a row, and we just told her, just turned her loose with a key and said, don't talk to anybody who's not wearing a badge. And what she knows about Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's a place that's filled with love and loving people, and they're kind. And, and chances are she might need you someday. If not to be an alcoholic herself, perhaps she will need a chair in the Al-Anon room. And what she knows about you is that this is a kind and loving place. Last year she did a little book in the second grade, and the topic of her book was my grandmother. 